Okay, uh, why don't we begin? My name is Neil Sandel. Um, <laughs> that makes me feel like a rock star. <laughs> um, I'm senior producer of a CBC show uh, that does personal documentaries called Outfront. Um, <clears throat> most of the uh, sound that you're going to hear is drawn from pieces from Outfront. Uh, ordinary people pitch their stories to us at the rate of, I don't know, 500, maybe 1,000 a year, and we produce about 120 a year, uh, the Outfront team does. So um, uh, Outfront is my frame of reference, but I think that um, uh, a lot of what I'm going to tell you will you'll be able to uh, transfer. Um, I, I th and just sort of a bit of... Um, business. Uh, I want to allow a chunk of time at the end for questions, but if there's something that uh, uh, midway, like while I'm talking about something that I have really confused you or you need some clarification, please uh, don't hesitate to uh, go to one of the floor mics uh, and, and ask the question. Um, but I'll also take the liberty of moving things along if, <laughs> if, it get, if we get bogged down. Um, so really, uh, broad outline is I want to give you, uh, explain um, how I think personal, what, what a personal documentary is. Uh, and then really important stuff about how you choose a story that other people want to listen to. Because, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to figure out that what is important to us maybe other people really won't care about. So there... There's some guidelines and things we've, uh, tricks that we've picked up along the way. And then some, um, I want to illustrate, if you can illustrate with sound. And uh, then some other, other techniques. Um, but um, I actually thought, given the title that I've chosen, I thought I'd start with, uh, I guess you would call it a secret because I, um, I've never really, talked about this very much. Um, so this is, this happened when I was about six or seven years old. One of the great things uh, about my father is he would always take me fishing on Saturday mornings, you know, something I really liked doing. And occasionally he'd, he'd, he'd invite uh, some adults. Um, you know, it's, that was fine too. Uh, and, and we'd usually meet, uh, you know, his, his friend, for the, you know, his friend at the lake. So one Saturday morning, we're driving to the lake, and um, he says, uh, Neil, you know, um, Mr. Funk, uh, he, he doesn't know that we're Jewish, and uh, I'd, I'd rather he didn't know, so, so, like, don't say anything. So... We get to the lake. Okay, that's all I'm going to tell you for now. And I've stopped there deliberately because, um, just sort of in parenthesis, um, you're always looking for a kind of a teaser and a slow reveal when you're telling some kind of getting into some kind of documentary. Um, but the other reason that I told that story is because I think um, what distinguishes great good from great or great from good documentaries 
personal documentaries is that um, you need to get outside of your, pers your um, comfort zone. I'll come back to this in a lot of different ways, but um, there should be some risk involved to you because I think uh, really uh, absolute necessity in personal documentaries is getting some core of, um, I'd say, emotional truth. It's kind of a highfalutin term, but you know we know it when we hear it. In the Bonnie Raitt song, that emotional, which strikes me as being a great song on so many levels and quite moving as a Hurton song, you know, that emotional truth that she's describing is you can't make somebody love you. you just, it's beyond your power. And there's all kinds of, you know, emotion attached to that. Um, as I said at the beginning, one of the hardest things is to figure out what's a story and what isn't a story. And I want you to just do something for a moment. And I want you just write down privately, if you can, and, um, something that you've never told somebody really close to you about yourself, like a secret. Okay? Just spend a moment doing that. You're not going to have to share this with anybody. And like, just keep it to one sentence, you know. Now I want you to write, just think for a moment, and we all tell lies to ourselves uh, at some level. You know, it might, the lie might be something as innocuous as, you know, I look great in these pants, <laughs> when you don't. <laughs> um, or it could be something more serious. It could be, I can make this marriage work, when in your heart you probably know you can't anymore. You know, there's all kinds of different levels. But, you know, sometimes we tell ourselves lies to keep going. So um, uh, just write down a lie that you tell yourself. Or if you're not inclined to write it, Sort of contemplate that for a moment. Okay, so if you're looking for, if you're casting about for subject matter for a personal documentary, look for the things in your life that go unsaid, things that might be secrets or lies you tell yourself or, or the things that you would only whisper about. Um, I'm not suggesting you have to spill the beans every time you do a, a personal documentary, but um, you're always looking for the tender parts of your life and things that are unresolved. Be and I'll explain why in, in a little bit. Let me back up uh, just to give you a little framework. Personal documentaries as opposed to the kind of documentaries that we, or we usually hear on the radio, which are news or current affairs documentaries, those are, are based in fact and information, right? Um, there's an argument, there's an issue to be explored, a pro and a con, that kind of thing. Um, 
uh, and it doesn't, I'm not knocking those documentaries, I've made them. I mean, I've made documentaries about things as abstract as the origins of the universe. Um, try getting people to care about that. Uh, <laughs> um, but really, the subject matter of the personal documentary is life itself. It's, it's uh, you know, things like loss and redemption and betrayal and loyalty. And, and in that, it, it really is a lot closer to fiction, fictional storytelling, than um, uh, non-fictional storytelling. Um, because it's dealing with the substance of life. And so you need to find ways of, of uh, accessing that. Um, some other things that I think are characteristics of personal documentaries. Um, there has to be a story there. Uh, merely describing a situation um, usually doesn't sustain somebody's interest. If you're telling a story, you want that element of that all stories have of what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. And we're drawn to story, right? You, can, you may have uh, intentions of broader themes, um, but I think you, the core has to be a, a story. Um, I would also say that it works best if it's uh, about something that's uh, unresolved because you still want some kind of unfolding, some, something to happen. Now, personal stories, um, in terms of the subject matter, I mean, they don't have to, they don't have to be heavy. You know, I mean, we, at Outfront, we've done like a full spectrum of stories, everything from, you know, uh, the people suffering disease and abuse and all this kind of stuff. And, and, um, but we've also done amazing stories uh, that are about people examining the commonplace in their lives. Um, so let me tell, tell you just a little bit about uh, an example of that. Um, this is a, a piece I'm working on right now, so it's not finished, but I have a, a kind of a neat clip that I want to tell you about. This um, freelancer said, I want to, you know, I'm, every Friday I, I really look forward to getting the flyers uh, for, for the grocery stores and, uh, on my doorstep, and I just love shopping with flyers, and I love shopping and everything like that. Um, and she was, she sold us on the idea, and we thought, you know, we're curious about why, and, and um, uh, so we probed her, and um, it turned out that uh, she hadn't really thought about why she did it, but once we, we kind of probed her, there were two things operating. One is she was, she's a single woman in her probably around 30 years old, and she said, you know, I don't have to be cheap, but I have to be frugal because no one's going to take care of me. I don't have any, like my friends who are married, they have fallbacks. I don't have any fallback, so I, I can't just, you know, buy what I want. So that's, hmm, that's okay. Um, and then we probed a little further, and uh, it turned out that uh, this whole shopping thing was about 
something more. So let me, let me just play you this little bit of tape here. I got this job in Timmins, Ontario, and it was a good job, but the drawback was, you know, born and raised in Toronto, and here I am eight hours north, no friends, no family, and I could not for the life of me fit in. Part of it's my personality. I'm really, um, I can be really fixed in my thinking and my ways. And also, I didn't fit in because I just, it just wasn't my lifestyle. It was just a completely different lifestyle. It, it wasn't the kind of things I enjoyed. It, just a different, it's like being on, a, in another, on another planet, basically. So really, outside of my work, I did not have anything to do. No one to call, nowhere to go, nobody to do anything with. So to kill time, I used to, to shop. Now when I say I used to shop, I didn't necessarily buy things, but I mean by going to a store at least you could, it was a reason to put on clothing and leave the house and go out and come back and say that you did something. I remember uh, one night I had played baseball, not even all the time. I was just like a fill-in on someone's team. And at the end of the season, I went to the baseball banquet. But the banquet went on into the evening, and everyone was drinking and dancing and stuff and having fun, but I wasn't. I don't drink. I didn't really know anybody. And it's Saturday night, and I have nothing to do and nowhere to go. So I went to Walmart, because Walmart and Timmins stayed open late. They used to stay open, I think, till 11 or 12. It was crazy. But it was great at the same time, because it was somewhere to go. So here I am skulking up and down the aisles of Walmart. You're just kind of hoping that something will catch your attention just to distract you so you can kill time. So I'm wandering the aisles. And it's funny because I want to be out of the house because it's Saturday night. I don't want to be sitting at home alone. But on the other hand, I'm horrified that somebody might see me because how much of a loser do I look like on a Saturday night? You know, you're supposed to be young and single and out doing fun things, and I'm hiding in Walmart. So her story moves from being about the joy of shopping and it's still going to be about the joy of shopping, to uh, how shopping fills up the loneliness in her life, really. Um, now, the thing, no matter what kind of story you're doing, um, you know, whether it's a story about the decline of the salmon fishery um, or the origins of the universe or, or shopping, you always have to ask yourself the question early on, why should anyone care, right? That's sort of like a, a kind of a baseline question that all journalists and storytellers have to ask. Why should I care? And, the, and you know, there's no intrinsic reason why anybody should care about somebody else's story, but yet we're dr totally drawn to some stories and not others. And as far as I can tell in radio, the thing that draws us in is um, authenticity, 
somebody really being honest and really peeling back the layers and sort of talking about those things that may be hard to talk about and, and discovering things about their lives. Um, you know, it's that, that thing about emotional truth. So how do you get there? How do you figure that out? Um, I'd say you know, the, the tool I always use are the words, so what? So when I'm developing a story with somebody, they'll tell me their story. I want to, you know, let me give you another example. We had this great, really quite a charming pitch um, uh, from a woman who, she's probably like 30, 35 now, um, who grew up in rural Alberta on a farm, and she was waxing nostalgic about fruit pies, you know, like apple pies and all this kind of stuff. And she wanted to do this kind of tribute to the apple pie. And we normally wouldn't do that kind of story because, like, it doesn't go anywhere. But we thought we might get some free pie, <laughs> and which we did actually, <laughs> and um, and it was really a well-written um, pitch. So um, we, I'm I'm working with this uh, with Tara, and um, I'm asking her, well, tell me about your farm, uh, and she tells me about the farm, and she says. Uh, uh, you know, it's like really big and everything like that. And uh, and uh, I said, how big? And he said, well, I could I could sort of ride my horse till the end of the uh, like I'd come home from school, do my chores, and then I'd ride my horse, and uh, I'd still be riding uh, to the end of our property when when it was dusk. It's it great image. So um, then I said. Uh, Huh. So, um, so what happened to your horse? Clunk. Her voice, she stopped and her voice shifted. And uh, it turns out that, you know, she had to give up her horse. And why did she have to give up the horse? Because they lost the family farm. Her dad went bankrupt. They had to move. And she tied... So her nostalgia for pies is really ends up being a story about the loss of her way of life. She loved being on the farm, and they had to move to the city. And you can, you know, um, we never actually. I'm going to play you how this all played out in on tape uh, in some of the the pre-interview phase. Um, so. Gradually, by asking this, these sorts of so what questions, like so, you know, why, so what, just trying to peel off those layers, uh, this story about fruit pies becomes a story about uh, a loss of a way of life and trying to reconcile that now. And she lives in the city and she associates pie with the country and like what good is making pie in the city and then her grandmother is, is part of that. So the, the so what is very important. Light versus heavy, I think both can work in terms of subject matter. Uh, one other thing I would uh, observe is that um, it cannot, your story, now, I don't want to make absolute rules because I've seen different, but generally speaking, it cannot all happen in the past. It can't be over and resolved. Why? Because 
you're making a documentary and you need something to unfold in the present tense. You need some sense of surprise and discovery that you, that the listener's going to hear. And if something happened and is over and done with, it might make, you know, a moderately interesting anecdote. Um, but to be drawn in as a radio documentary where, thing, where there are scenes and characters, you, you know, you, you need something that, that is unresolved. And in terms of the dramaturgy, uh, the, the way of thinking of it is a character is usually searching for something, something you want something. So the documentary is about the gap between what you have and what you want or what you want and what you can't get. And, and then you try and uh, set up some, some actions that, that do that. I would also say, um, just to kind of conclude uh, uh, the business about um, subject matter, uh, go for the concrete, not the abstract. Um, so um, if you, your beginning point, like if somebody says, I want to create awareness about blank, that's really vague. You know, what does that look like? What's that going to sound like, creating awareness? Um, um, also, you know, genealogy people. <laughs> uh, genealogy people are fascinated by their own family histories, and that's legitimate. But it's very difficult to to get that to make somebody else care, um, unless you can tie it in with you. So I invented an example. Um, for example, you might say um, the beginning might be. I loved my grandfather. My grandfather grew up in Germany and was a Nazi. So there you have something, there's an inherent tension between loving somebody and knowing that they have a Nazi past, you know? I could see how that kind of story could unfold. But you know, saying that my um, great, 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 great uncle was involved in the Austro-Hungarian War and was a colorful character, I don't know, I, I, that would be much higher mountain to climb. Okay, so um, so this is not to say that things in the past aren't useful because I think the backstory is very important. Um, there, you're always going to have this dimension of scenes that are unfolding, surprise, things that you don't know how it's going to turn out. That's really important to, to maintain that discovery, sense of discovery. Um, but then there's that kind of backstory of things that have happened in the past that inform your journey. And then there's that kind of reflection about that, the making sense of it. Um, at Outfront, we, um, we do a lot of debrief interviews to get that element. And what that what we do is uh, um, we gather we gather tape from, uh, with a person in in an office or in a studio. Usually we do it in our office because they're quiet enough and it's comfortable. And um, uh, so I want to describe how we do that and then play an example of how it how it might how it would sound in the case of the pie story. This by this technique, by the way, was um, pioneered by. Uh, a, 
American documentary maker named Stephen Schwartz, who made a great career in, with Danish radio. Um, and uh, he did some workshops uh, at CBC in the 90s, and it kind of became viral from there. And, and so uh, um, we, we certainly use this technique. Um, if um, I get, I get a freelancer to sit beside me, why? Because it's easier to, instead of holding the mic out like that, <laughs> your arm's going to fall out. You just, sort of, you just sort of get that person comfortable. Um, and say to them, um, so we're just gonna, I'm just going to get you to um, finish some sentences just f f that I'm going to feed you and just free associate. Uh, with them, and so you've got this list. Rather than questions and answers, you've got a list of questions or sentences that they're going to complete. Why do we do that? Because um, we are cutting ourselves out. We're not part of the documentary; it's their documentary. So, and and implicitly, if somebody, if, when you're gathering tapes, an answer has part of the question in it. Um, so, complete the sentence. And just take it wherever you want. But when you're doing that, um, close your eyes. And, and you, you know, be surprised how willing people are to do that. I even had a, a cop close his eyes, um, uh, willing to recount some of his, his things that had happened to him in his career. But close your eyes. And the aim there is has a few beneficial effects. One is they're not giving you, they're not feeding off of what your, or your body language, because of course body language, it can't be recorded on tape. Second of all, it allows them to enter a kind of an inner space. And ideally you want them to be, you know, in a dream, it's like uh, you see in your mind's eye, almost like a cinema and you're describing things and that kind of stuff, that really becomes a, quite an inner space. And, um, and then, if, and I say, if, if the sentence doesn't work, try something different. And then you're, you're also listening, and you're probably listening with your eyes closed too, so that you can really, really hear. And I always do that with headphones so that I hear what the recorder is hearing. Um, and then you'll be, kind of listening for what they're saying, but also the sound of their voice and how the sound of their voice might be shifting and where, where is the gold lying and gold in, in this story. Um, let me play you a bit of tape. So this is um, three parts of my debrief interview with, uh, with Tara. The, who had the pie story. And the first part is just sort of the, the sound check and, and the second part is midway through and then the third part is as we get further into it, maybe about, I think it's 18 minutes in. Um, and also like listen uh, to the, the shift in the, the tone of voice. I had a low carb flax cereal with flax seeds in it and a cup of coffee, decaf coffee with cream, and that's it. Oh, no, that's not it. And I had two chunks of turkey. 
I can ride my horse and never come to the end of our property. I can ride my horse and never come to the end of our property. This, this isn't specifically true. If you had the whole day, you could do it. But you never have the whole day. So you pick, you pick where you're going and you go there. But if you have really long time, you can ride down the road allowance and along the lake shore and past the long 80 and through another road allowance and you'll be at our far pasture and the far pasture has a windmill which sometimes is working and when the windmill is working it's like magic and the water that comes out of it is so crystal and so sweet in your mouth and you can drink it right from the the metal pipe. So she's talking in pictures now. You can, and she's talking in the present tense, which is we really encourage because that helps you be in the moment. Uh, maybe five, ten minutes later, and I'm off mic. I don't care. That's why the, the, you hear me sound different. You know what? Don't care about what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Tape is cheap. We're going to use little snippets. It, you know it. Nothing matters, really. Okay. All right. So, All right. So, like, uh, so I don't have to worry about long thoughts or... No, you don't have to worry about long thoughts. You don't have to worry about saying things um, like bad grammar or anything like that. It just doesn't matter. Okay. Just be who you are. Um, I'm, riding, I'm riding my horse into the secret clearing that I know. Something like that. But take, be, be there, like do it in the sort of present tense, okay? I am riding. Um, I'm riding my horse into this secret clearing that I know at the far edges of our property, down by the pasture, the big pasture, and It's afternoon and the air under the trees is cooler and the light is falling through the trees and it makes this dappled pattern on the floor of the clearing and the log, I sit on the log that, that I can see and it's, it's all, it's, it's disintegrating into a dry mulch and it's clean somehow. It seems okay to sit on it, so I do. And there are ants underneath, but they're black ants, so that's okay. <laughs> you can sit there safely. And so I do. My horse is beside me, 
horse. <laughs> Sorry, my horse is always beside me when I'm out on the farm by myself. My horse, she, she's always not far away. So, um, actually, I never used that tape. We never used that tape when we were making the documentary because um, it, it took us in a different direction. It could have been a great documentary about losing her horse, but <clears throat> what, it, what it did do is opened, a, opened up the doors for, um, for that real emotional truth and, and real reflection that wouldn't make you want to listen to what she had to say. Yeah. Did you know there was a clearing? Did you take that from something she said before? Did you just throw it out there thinking maybe there was a clearing? No, the only thing I, I, I knew was that the, this thing about riding your horse to the end of the property. And, um, you know, so I might, might have said, where did you go? Yes. Well, the thought occurs to me, why would people want <coughs> to tell these stories to you? Or why would they want them well, the question is, why would people want to tell their personal stories? I'd say their motivations are, are mixed. Um, I, th I think uh, because, you know, frankly, a lot of people don't want to get to that level of disclosure. Um, but some people do. Uh, and I, I don't know. Uh, people want to tell stories. People want to... Um, work through something, perhaps. Uh, you know, why do novelists write, write fiction that is very clearly about things in their life, both painful and joyful? It's sort of like, a, it's a good question, but it's, really, it's a big question. Um, and other people have, have, you know, there's lots of different reasons. Um, so I, I'm afraid I don't have a really good answer to that question. Yeah. Just a, a curiosity question about the technique. I mean, obviously you're able to get good tape, but the quality, the you know, the first part of that last bite that you just played, the person was speaking and it didn't sound like they were talking. It sounded like they were in fact reflecting. Do you find that while this technique is effective at opening someone up, it's not? maybe tape that you really can use because the style, how they're speaking is more halting, more... Mm, the, que the question, I, I think if I can summarize the question, um, how useful is the tape because of the halting style? Um, uh, did I, let me address that one and then... Um, that was unedited tape. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd keep the sound of her speech but tighten that up and, you know, get to the point. Uh, you know, it's that balance that you use when you're editing tape. And she, this is her story. It's a first-person story. We're working side by side, right? Because um, she, it's really important, uh, I think, that if you're telling, you know, that um, you're not interpreting another person's story, you may be guiding them in different directions and seeing the, seeing what they cannot see because they're too close to it. And you may at some point want to just push them a little bit, but it's with their consent too. Uh, has that answered your question? 
I mean, I, 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 to a certain extent, I guess what I'm wondering, though, is that even if, even if you tighten up the pauses, you're still going to have somebody who sounds like they are thinking back, recalling, as opposed to just sort of almost simply talking. Uh, you see, I think there. I think I'd prefer to have somebody in the moment because I think that's where you get engaged. This is actually a pretty good segue to to uh, the issue of how you narrate a personal documentary, <clears throat> and um, I I like to shy away from having somebody write something and read it. They might, in structuring the story, write out some of their thoughts, but um, I, th I avoid that. Um, and as a group, we tend to avoid that because it's really hard to perform. First of all, it's really hard to write for the radio. Uh, and second of all, if you, even if you've written something for the radio, it's really hard to perform it so that it doesn't sound like you're reading something. Um, let me give you uh, uh, this an example. And I, th this was produced by somebody who is pretty new at it, okay? So you're gonna hear two examples. First of all, the first take is somebody, uh, the, uh, the storyteller reading her narration that she's written. Then you'll hear, oh, so what happened is she read her narration, it clunked, it just sounded so red and I didn't, you know, I didn't really care about it because it was put such a distance between her and me. So I asked the producer who's uh, in another city, just get her to tell the story, you know, improvise it, get it, you know, that kind of thing. So you, hear, you, hear, you will hear the written script and then the improvised, written, improvised, okay? This is about like three minutes long or something. This diary hadn't been opened by anyone for many years when I found it. My mother was quite offhand about it. She didn't give it to me. She just let me take it. She rarely spoke of India, her birthplace. It's a pocket-sized diary, and she has taken care to write on the right-hand pages so that on the left-hand pages she can place photos, sketches and pressed flowers, even a cutting from a newspaper. At first reading, it seemed both marvelous and very ordinary. I, I found the diary, I really, I stumbled upon the diary when I was uh, nosing around in my mother's bedroom at one point. And I wondered what it, I mean, I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, this is, this is interesting. And, you know, before even thinking about it, I had un, unpacked it out of a little wrapping, a little pl plastic bag it was in, and couldn't place what it was at all because there's nothing in there that says Catherine Godwin. So I asked my mother and... Her remark was, quite coldly, oh, something of your grandmother's. Quite fortuitously, I had the diary in my bag when I sat with my mother in her last hours of life. I read passages to her. She was barely conscious. I told her that this was her mother's diary, her mother's voice, and she could let go now. She could leave for the mountain, so fondly remembered. A part of me was actually hesitant in reading the diary to my mother at her death because I realized that here I was telling her to go and in a way join her mother or go to the mountains. But I'm quite sure that the diary uh, would also, and maybe that's why it was hidden, that the diary also represented for her the separation that she had from her mother 
beginning at the moment that that diary is written, when my mother is two and a half years old, and she's on a boat being sent back to England. It's pretty dramatic, the, the difference. And for me, it's a no-brainer, which I want to listen to. Um, and I, I don't think it's... First of all, reading ten I mean, unless you're really, really good at it, um, tends to be either too fast or strident. Anyhow, I don't want to... I don't want to belabor the point. I mean, there are some times when reading can work, and my colleague Steve Wadhams is very, very good at at getting people to use letters uh, um, as a way of telling a story. Uh, you know, uh, we had a pitch. Uh, we had a, we did a story about uh, a guy, <laughs> a man, and the, the husband who was just really pissed off that his wife and the two children had got a dog and he didn't want a dog. And it's like, what am I going to do with this? So he wrote, Steve had him write um, an email to the dog <laughs> and use that as one of the threads. Um, there's another, there's a 17-year-old who was doing a story for us about uh, some something, some bit of business that she had with her now dead grandfather. And she came in and... She was just as quiet as a church mouse. I mean, she spoke like this. You almost had to lean in to listen to her. And that kind of debrief interview, just it just would not work. So in desperation, and I think it's so amazing, the result, Steve said, I want you to write a letter to your grandfather at the computer here right now. And um, I just want you to talk it as you're writing it. And here's what it here's what the opening sounded like. Dear Sia, I want to write you a letter because I, f I feel it's long overdue. If you can hear me on some sort of level, something you really need to hear. And most of it would have to be an apology of some sort. I'm sorry I couldn't... I couldn't have helped you when you really needed me. You had a hard life. But you still... You went out of your way to... to create, like, fun and excitement. Every time we go on a car trip, we still sing, uh, we still sing Louisiana. I still don't know what that song means, but we still sing it. Louisiana, Louisiana, down where the watermelons grow. It was, just, it was the last gasp and, you know, she opened up. It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, Okay, so you've done the debrief, you know, you've, you know, done it at some point in the process, um, but you've also, uh, you're also figuring out what sorts of scenes will tell the story, what things you can do to advance the action. Um, uh, since sometimes uh, for personal stories, a place can be 
really pregnant with um, with feeling and, and meaning. Um, Jody Porter uh, did a story about uh, about uh, her really troubled um, childhood, and um, one of the things you know is most it was almost all in the past. But so I got her, and she I mean I asked her if she would go back to her home as a child and um, and just uh, walk around with a microphone and just do a stream of consciousness. Um, and uh, so I'd use this as an example of what can happen if you take yourself to an important place. Hi. Hi. I'm Jody. Just figuring out your gait. It's so weird going up these steps, even. Go on. Thank you. I don't know how much this, like the additions were here when you were here. Yeah. I don't know if the upstairs is the same. This is going to be one of our rooms. Yeah, so this was my room. This was your room? Yeah. Yeah, I picked out that wallpaper. Yeah, and there were two windows. They redid all those windows, because the one window, I would crawl out onto the roof and, oh and smoke. So but I thought my parents didn't know. Yeah. But I'd have a harder time crawling out that window, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if you don't mind, I'll hang out no, here, no. and I'll be down in a few minutes. Okay. So this is it. I picked out that wallpaper. And I put that sticker on that thermostat. Man, this room. It's awful here. Remember, uh, lying. I was. I'm lying on the bed and pretending to be asleep and listening and listening for the footsteps coming up the stairs. Are they my dad's? Was that his knees popping? Please walk past, please walk past, please walk past, please walk past. Um, so that kind of told you everything you needed to know about uh, what happened to her as a 10-year-old. As a um, and she could have told, she could have said, I was sexually abused by my father. And in fact, she, she, she does fairly early in the story, so it's not a surprise, actually. That in the, this is midway in the uh, in the piece, but to me it it just sort of takes it. Make listening to that even now, it I really feel uncomfortable. It makes kind of makes my skin crawl, and um, I've had this 
conversation with many people who say that's too intimate, and maybe it is. But to my mind, it cap. I don't mind making my listener uncomfortable, at least a little bit sometimes, um, because it takes me into something that's haunted her for 20 years. Um, so a sense of place can be very evocative for people. Um, you, you want to create scenes, right? You, uh, and, and scenes that have all kinds of information. Um, something that happens sometimes when, when journalists do personal stories is they'll go out and they'll interview people and all you get is the, the sound of the, the person they're interviewing. But in a personal story, I think you're part of the story. It has to be, don't think in terms of interview, think in terms of a conversation that you're recording because if you're the storyteller, how you respond in this conversation is so full of information. Um, whether you're surprised, whether you, you know, there's all kinds of um, very important information. Uh, so um, my colleague Carmen Jolly was doing a piece with uh, uh, a woman who, who was very honest about talking about how her father getting Alzheimer's had actually improved their relationship. Um, that's a pretty hard thing to talk about. Uh, um, I want you. To, I want to play you there. This conversation that this are really is so much show and not tell. And uh, whoever's I know there's a person doing workshops on developing scenes. I'm sure this is going to going to really get into this. But I, I, I just find this so revealing. Um, and and I really also like her her the reflection that is layered into the scene. I often go to visit my dad in his home. He's always very pleased to see me and I get a very warm reception. It's funny, with Alzheimer's my dad has really realized how important his family is. And he, one of his favorite conversations is about my brothers, or he'll talk about family all the time, which is ironic because as I was growing up, I never had the feeling that my dad saw our family as being really important. He had to provide for us, but that seemed to be enough. What am I to say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What would you like What to a say? beautiful lady it is with all this here. Lovely daughter, who's number one. Lovely children, lovely husband, lovely where she lives. Beautiful. Oh, my word, I sound just terrific. <laughs> when I think back, you were the first one in the family. And you're, you're the lady who died, your mother. We wondered if we were ever going to have a child. We thought, could we ever have a child? We had two boys and a girl. That was wonderful. It was a wonderful time, and I'm so delighted to have this in my life. My dad is so funny. Anything I do is just the most wonderful thing. He's always so full of compliments. He's always telling me how wonderful I am, how beautiful I am, how I'm the best child, how I'm the best daughter. I really appreciate how much he feels for me, but 
I don't like hearing it over and over again. It makes me feel quite uncomfortable. I almost feel guilty. I don't really deserve to be seen as being such a wonderful person. It's lovely to see you. You're here. Yeah. You know how much we love you, don't you? Yeah, I know. Anyway, so we were talking about what we're going to do today, yes. right? What would you like to do today? I don't know, though. I didn't have an idea. I wanted to go something that you like. That little bit at the end, God, it's so revealing. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 um, and, you know, there was really good ju editorial judgment in keeping that in, right? And and, and it, it, one of, it's, it's really interesting working with being the midwife of somebody's story because you're always doing this balancing act. You need to um, respect their wishes, but you also need to help them see how the story can be more powerful. Um, uh, and sometimes there's a struggle, you know, sometimes you really have to have to uh, persuade somebody um, uh, and they may, they may push back, you know, but um, I think from the point of view of the producer editor, that's, that's part of what you're doing. You're obviously non-judgmental. Um, you want to be helping this person tell their story. Um, I want to make sure there's time for uh, questions and stuff like that. Um, can can you actually can you hold on to your question for a moment? Uh, for a few moments. Um, I want to talk. Well, I mean, you could say so many things about the ethics of making personal documentaries, um, and I'm probably just scratching the surface, and uh, but um, you know, there's a lot of common sense. Like, don't exploit people, um, get people's consent. I, I don't believe in secretly taping people. Um, uh, respect who has control over the story. We're now distinguishing between this and what in journalism would be called the profile, where you know. The, the journalist is profiling this person and has some sort of take on them. Um, ethics are complex, but the, um, the best little tool that I learned was in weighing what to do in a dicey question is what you're really doing is weighing the harm against weighing, weighing the harm against the good. You're, you know, how do these two balance out? Um, uh, <clears throat> and I would also say that um, these kind of ethical questions is a really good time to to bring other people into the conversation uh, who who might be wiser than you. <laughs> um, do you guys know Jonathan Goldstein's show Wiretap? Uh, some it's it's quite a wonderful CBC show that's uh, syndicated uh, I think on PRI. Um, so uh, I, I think he really takes the mickey out of <laughs> the, the whole personal disclosure thing. I, I can't not play this lovely little seg segment, which um, I do at some risk because it perhaps undermines some of what we're saying, what we're doing and saying when we do personal documentaries. But here we go. John, don't you have any pride? 
What, what are you talking about? Well, you, have to, you seem to have an inability to recognize that certain things don't belong in a mass medium. You talk about the most intimate things to the, to the average uh, person uh, scrolling by on the radio dial. I mean, they hear things about you that are they're intimate. Uh, you, you seem to have no qualms about sharing them. I don't understand it. Normal people wouldn't do that. What are you talking about? I, I'm, I have nothing to hide. I'm you're not... right, you have nothing to hide. And that's what you talk about. You talk about how your, your, your tuna salad had too much salt in it. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about how, you know, you have a, you have a bunion on your foot that's itching. There should be a limit to self-revelation. That uh, you're basically you're 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 becoming naked on the radio. I think I think it's helpful to people. Helpful to who? Well, it, you know, it's like what Oprah Winfrey does. Oprah? Oprah Winfrey? Yeah, it's something that you know. It's like oh. it's, she does this. It, it offers comfort to people. Oprah? Yeah. Well. Oprah. Yeah. That's who you're comparing yourself to now. Oprah. Well, I mean, you know. You're the Canadian Oprah. Dr. John, maybe that could be you. Dr. Goldstein, hmm? no, I, Dr. Goldstein. That is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. You I'm just saying that you know people listening can say, oh yeah, hey, you know I've I've been there too. I feel less alone. Are you out of your mind? What possible? Has, what what sense of grandiosity has overtaken you? Not a sense of grandiosity at all. It I think it absolutely is. Like I'm just saying, you know, I'm I'm the everyman. John, you, you're not everyman. You're not even one man. Okay, you're like you're like three quarters of a man. Well, look, you know, I mean, you're guilty of the same thing. I mean, you have been on, you know, you've been on the radio with me, and you have shared a lot of very personal details about your own life. It's true. Your girlfriend troubles, and, you, you know, your pains, and oh my God. your loneliness. Oh, that is unbelievable. You, you, you are the most shameless. You've dragged it out of me. You forced me. You no, turned no, me you, out. You, John, you taped me without my knowledge. No, that's, that isn't true. It absolutely is I've true. always I told you. willingly talked on the radio. I cannot even talk to you on the phone without doubting your motives. You're probably taping me right now. So you have absolutely no shame. You know what? You're so crazy that you actually probably are taping it. Okay, can I say something? Can I rebut? Yes, rebut. I didn't know you butted in the first place. I am tape recording you. Oh, God. Listen, I, I, think, that, um, I think that when you share your problems with me, that... Um, that some good comes out of it, that people feel less alone. People are able to relate to your problems and feel maybe, you know, less strange about themselves. And I mean, like, like, like for instance, like you were telling me just a couple of days ago, you know, that whole thing that you do with the apron, you know, like, like, like that's the kind I, of... The, the apron? My God, I, I, can't, I can't tell you anything. It's unbelievable. What? You, you know, that, that apron's always mine. You can't have it. Okay? Well, I, it's not yours. Right. I, I'm just bringing it up as an example. I, I, as, you no, know, you know the what? Kind you of... never neutrally bring anything up as an example. You it's always a, want to pump me. It's, I'm just bringing... It's a little picadillo kind of thing that, that, you know, I bring it up as an example of a personal es eccentricity. Go no, ahead. Tell, it's, like... not, it's not an eccentricity. There's nothing, there's nothing eccentric about it. Right. Like, what's so, what's so wrong about that, it? That's right. I mean, nothing. I... I... I, I I like to wear uh, I like to wear the apron that my grandmother used to wear. Okay, a, that's normal. A beautiful gingham apron, because you know an apron isn't only for cooking. Okay, right. an apron is 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 is, is an honored um, family heirloom. So let me get this straight. You so you lace yourself up. Yeah, that's right. Like a corset. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, no, no. Why do you have to sexualize everything? No, I mean I'm I'm just trying to paint a picture. Well, don't. Okay. It's what you do on the radio. Unpaint. Okay. What what radio? This is not on the radio. Right. <laughs> Questions? Hi. Um, I work with college students, and um, sometimes the most uh, 
significant story involves a lot of risk. And it might be a story that uh, is completely life-changing. And sometimes the question comes up um, as to when someone is really ready to tell that story. It might be a really traumatic story. And um, I know that there's sometimes that my students will do work and in one sense, they're really brave to present it. In another sense, uh, it's so raw, and they are so raw from it, that it actually becomes uh, almost impossible to critique it. Um, and so I guess my question that I'm trying to formulate is, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. You know, are there times when, uh, it's really a story that needs to be processed in some other way before, so that it can move beyond sort of uh, this very significant personal story into something that can uh, move out into some other sphere. Do, do they want to tell those stories? They do want to tell those stories, but you might have an instance where um, even... Uh, even talking about that story or their presentation of that story might um, flood that person with so much emotion that it's kind of a discussion ab about the presentation of that story is becomes very complicated. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about how you talk about that terrain with people, about well, when they're ready. Yeah, I mean, my gut instinct is for you, you, if you're inviting people to take those risks, you need to be there to deal with the consequences. Uh, I think it would be callous and irresponsible not to. Um, <clears throat> in terms of critiquing, I would critique the, the craft rather than the story, because, uh, you know, the dramaturgy, the, you know, all, all the, the storytelling method, because... Um, to critique one's person's story or not is uh, the, the actual story is probably more difficult from as a teacher. Um, I guess the question is: Do you have any? Is there anything that you share with people about um, something that they can consider about when it's time to tell a story? When is it time to tell a story? I'm sure I'll think of something later, but right now I can't. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I've been a journalist for a few years, and uh, I've noticed uh, the way I interview people, I just converse. So, you know, uh, if I'm a little bit dopey because I haven't slept, I'm a bit dopey and low-key, and if I've had too much coffee, then we both end up waving our arms around in the air and talking loudly and very, very fast. Um, but, but I wanted to ask you, when you do these sort of interviews, uh, how you prepare yourself. I'd imagine it doesn't quite work that way with you. Uh, I get the impression you need the person that you're interviewing or you're talking to to talk as if they're talking to themselves. So do you, to prepare yourself, do you try and do it so that um, you're you have to be soft-spoken and quiet and say very little so that the person you're talking to or with doesn't, almost doesn't know you're there. 
Um, do you become sort of friendly? Uh, or do you just be naturally just turn up and see what happens? Like how, where are you in this and how do you sort of uh, act and react and behave, that sort of thing? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I see, I mean, I'm never part of the story. Uh, so um, I don't want them to respond to me as a personality. I want them to trust me and to trust themselves. Um, I prepare myself by, I do a little bit of a pre-interview. Uh, pre um, I'm looking for pictures and moments. Pictures because radio works so well in pictures. And moments because uh, they tend to be sharper than a long anecdote. Um, and so I may have a few of those prepared and I'll write, you know, I'll write a bunch of questions and, uh, and then convert them into sentences. Um, and I'll sometimes work in os opposites. Um, um, I'm just going to pull make up an example. The thing I really want to tell my mother about making pie is if my mother didn't make pie, did it, you know, so you, you try and get the flip side. Um, refresh me, is that what you, I've forgotten a little bit of some of the question. Uh, uh, that's some of the question. The other some of the question, the other part of the question is how do you, um, when I do an interview, it doesn't really matter how I am. I can just be myself. It doesn't, I'm not part of the story to begin with. That's something I share with you. But also, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's for print mostly anyway. But, um, but I wondered, with you, it probably does matter so much as you don't really want to lead their, the way, change the way they are. The way that you act around them you don't want them to react to you, I would presume. Do you have to be very neutral in your behavior and just sort of just be a microphone rather than a person? Is that, am I making that clear? Yeah, I, I would say more the microphone rather than the person. But I also think that people um, uh, create certain set pieces in their lives and they have, we all have masks that we present to the world. And um, if you want to get to something deeper, you need to find a way of getting that person to get beyond those, you know, just the way they are, you know. Um, uh, I, I'm very comfortable with people expressing their emotions um, because, uh, you know, like, um, when I was in my 20s, I did a lot of psychological work and kind of got my own act together uh, to to some extent that I was comfortable with people crying and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you, you'll, you probably know this, but one of the worst things that you can do is catch somebody when they're falling, if they're in, in, uh, in the moment, right? Just stay out. Just let them be with that emotion. There's be, be lots of time to comfort them after, right? But if you're involved in a conversation, it would be really rude not to say, I understand, I understand, you know, it's not so bad, you know. Um, yep. Hello, um, I um, am 
working with a group of people um, who have a very, very deeply personal story to tell, um, but surrounding this story that they would like to tell is a lawsuit in which they are the plaintiff. Um, and I have been working with them and trying to get an interview since uh, last April, and so far have not yet um, gotten one. And recently, just this week, their legal team has told me they are advising their clients not to um, engage with the press. Um, but it does seem that they do want their story to be told. Um, and I just wanted to know if you had any questions about you know, where, where I stand ethically and, um, and so on. What's in the best interest of the, uh, the client? Or not the client, the, the people whose story I mean, you're well, telling? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if it's, if it's if I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that I know what's better for them than their lawyers, but um, but this is um, a story that's continued being told, you know, in snippets in newspapers. It's had a lot of newspaper coverage um, over the past uh, maybe like five, seven years, but there has been no. There's, yeah, <laughs> sounds like a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but there has been no like, you know, so, some some, you know, there's no like one piece to document the whole story, you know, and they, they've most been like, you know, newspaper accounts, but not really anything audio based. And people do want to tell their story and, and, um, and you know, but. Are you, are, are, would you be willing to take a long-term view of this and, and get them to record some of the material uh, now as it's happening while they're thinking about it? And, you know, since it's a moving story, it's developing, um, continue to recording, to continue to record and then, you know, produce the documentary unfortunately, sometime late. I, it's something I have to have done by kind of by middle next year, unfortunately. Either, you know, it's, it's from, yeah, I'm, it's, mm. it's like my thesis project for school, actually. <laughs> so I got to graduate, but. <laughs> you yeah. got to graduate. <laughs> Maybe they could settle the lawsuit. <laughs> Gee, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, people have, have to feel comfortable talking about what they're talking about. Um, um, so you're, you're asking them to weigh their desire to talk uh, publicly with with the lawyer's decision to to keep it um, quiet until what there's a settlement or uh, yeah probably not for another year or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know another uh, yeah. I don't have a good answer, but uh, here's another thing to consider, which is um, uh, question of balance. You know, uh, what's the other side? Anyhow, you've probably thought about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a group of people and a corporation. So. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's funny as a radio reporter how much I hate talking into microphones. <laughs> um, I was I was curious about some of the things you were um, talking about ethically. Uh, most of the people that I interview are really disenfranchised people who haven't yeah, ever been asked their stories and haven't had an opportunity to speak. And I find that maybe it's just my interviewing style. We get to a very intimate place very fast. And in, and they know what's going on the radio. You know, They know what's going to happen intellectually. But there's always something in my mind saying, well, a couple things. One is they can't really know. They can't know what that's going to be like to see their story or to hear it. Um, and I always play the story for people before it airs, not so that they can have a say in it, just so that they're not a victim of their story. But I, I can't, um, and I'm telling you this because I'm really, because I wrestle with this, and I'm curious about what you have to say. Um, 
that I often walk away feeling like I've uh, snatched something from people. You know, I have this intimate moment, and then I get up and leave. And you were talking about, you know, sort of weighing the, you know, sort of asking yourself the question, well, can you deal with the ramifications of that? You know, can you deal with the experience the person has after telling that story? And I never, I, I have the convenience of not having to deal with that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually to, something um, journalists in conflict zones have. Yeah, and, a and the thing, and the, the the thing that people say to themselves is, well, it's it is for the greater good. You know, I'm doing this larger thing, and so, you, you know, so it, it almost um, evades the question of, you know, sort of personal exploitation in a way, and a kind of, you well, know, I'd say ruthlessness. The, 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 the question is a couple of questions: Are, are you taking advantage of them? And second of all, what you know again, balancing the harm and and and, and the good. I, I think uh, that you have a special responsibility if somebody is sort of uh, um, vulnerable. I, I remember chasing a story. There was a, a high school shooting in Alberta. I was working on uh, as it happens, which is like all things considered. Um, and uh, we wanted to get an eyewitness in the high school, and I finally tracked doing it really fast to um, track down uh, a student who was an eyewitness. And um, she was 15 years old, and I knew that I, I mean, it was like an unfair contest. I knew I could persuade her to go out and get on the radio, but I just asked her once, do you want to tell this? And she said, no. And I left it at that because, you know, She's 15 years old. It was an unfair contest. Would I feel the same way if I was uh, pursuing somebody who who uh, was big and powerful? No, of course not. So you're talking about, you know, some, something in between. I also think, I mean, you have to be cognizant of the consequences, but you're not going to be able to control the consequences of your, your stories entirely either. Yeah. And, and, and how I people respond to them. And, and it, you know, there's something sort of almost paternalistic about it, deciding for somebody whether or not it's, you know, uh, appropriate for them. You know, I mean, if, if people say, well, yes, I do want to tell my story, um, part of me thinks, well, okay, you know, you're a grown-up. And, uh, you know, so, well, I, I guess that's the end of the question, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's like a daily wrestle in a way. Well, you know what, the fact that you're aware of it kind of is, is a good thing. Yeah. It probably adds some prudence. <laughs> to your, to I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I'm curious whether you find that this kind of storytelling skews to extroverts, and this is something that I um, I beat myself up about a little bit when I'm looking for people who are willing to keep audio diaries or willing to tell their stories, and you want people who are sort of external processors and they. Uh, they're introspective or, or they're reflective about what their experiences mean. And then I sometimes wonder, is it just the stories that get told are, are only the things that happen to storytellers? And maybe there are these stories out there that we don't pull out of people because they don't tend to step forward. Although I've also had the experience where I've tried to convince somebody to be interviewed and they've declined and I've said, oh, come on, come on. Well, then I realized, like, you actually can trust people if they say, no, I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think I do a very good job. I, I find they usually don't. Um, so, Sasha, I don't have a very good sample to judge from okay. because um, the people who, who submit pitches 
um, by definition, want to tell their story. So, um, I, but I suspect that the stories that get done are people who, um, little more, well, you know what, from a written pitch, you can't tell if somebody's extroverted or not. What you can do is get a sense of uh, how how much of an examined life they have, uh, whether whether they have some personal insight, because that's what you're really. Uh, that's where the story, the real core of the story will be. But it just seems like, like with the pie lady, that you almost have a psychiatrist's ability to like, you know, peel back and, and was there something in that pitch that told you that she could do more than pies or just it was she well She wrote in pictures. Oh, good. Okay. She wrote beautiful pictures. And uh, I thought, well, that, that's pretty interesting. Plus there was pie. Hi, I have a question about the method for getting people to narrate their stories and what you said about having people improvise. Um, does it work better to have them write it first? That's one. And then also, what if, you're try what if they want to do a story with tape? I mean, how do you get them to improvise to tape? Um, okay, first of all, yeah, writing helps, helps because it organizes their thoughts and the writing is scenes, you know. Um, and it's helpful to you when you, if if you are the producer and getting them to just tell you the story. <clears throat> um, writing to scenes, um, I think that writing to scenes is sort of um, overrated. Quite frankly, uh, you know, if you look at the structure of a movie, there's very little writing to scene, and we're quite used to making sense of a move from one scene to the next. Sometimes you might just want to drop in a bit of information. Uh, uh, as a voiceover, you know, in, in somewhere in, like, um, my mom. <laughs> Rather than, I went to my mother and I asked her, that kind of thing. I, I, you know, I'm a terrible, terrible voiceover narrator, which is why I'm really skewed um, to not using it. Uh, so, you know, you, I, I would say... Um, less than more. On the other hand, there are some documentary makers who are, who are so good at doing it. Uh, Chris Brooks is in Canada is a really wonderful example. He's a, like a really good actor. And his narration's absolutely part and parcel of his storytelling. But if you're talking you know, to people who don't do it for a living, uh, I think it's easier to just sort of move from scene to scene. And you'd be surprised how much um, sense people will make of it, you know, like, just to give you a small example, if, if somebody's traveling from, you know, somebody's going to Hungary to tell, to find, speak to their grandfather, you do not need a, the sound of the airport, and you do not need the sound of the flight being called. All you need is the next scene to be the sound of a foreign language. You'll get that it's in Hungary. Do you know what I mean? Um, so try less than more. Just as try and push yourself in that direction would be my advice. Okay, thanks. Hi there. Hi. Uh, you mentioned the free association questions that you'll do with people. I wondered what the source of those questions was, because the example you gave was from a pitch letter, but I'm wondering what other places you may get questions and if there's any sort of boilerplate things you might have. Hmm. 
actually you raised something that, that uh, I forgot to say, which is look for touchstones uh, that they can free associate with sense of place I mentioned, but sometimes photographs, an old diary, a journal, um, an object might be like pregnant with, with meaning. Um, do 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 some have some discussion like a long discussion so uh, so that you're prepared you know where you want to go. Could you give a couple more examples because I think you had the example of the horse. I just wondered if there were examples of a couple more questions or sentences you might use have used with the pie lady. Oh, uh, sure. Um, her story really revolved around her grandmother. Grandmother. So I just said, um, Grandma. And <laughs> she opened up about Grandma. Grandma, you know, you know, okay, Tara, tell me about your Grandma making pies. Okay, where are you? Oh, well, we're in my Grandma's kitchen. Okay, so uh, start this. Um, grandma's making pies. She. She makes, she talks while she's, I'm just paraphrasing what she says, she talks while she's making pies. It's like she's rolling cigarettes. She's not, she makes them so easily. And like the backstory is Tara doesn't know how to make pies. And then they move into town and she stops making pies. She goes on strike. She serves store-bought pies. This is all edited together, right? And if I could cue it up, I'd play it to you. But um, so you're picking up those little cues you, like it's really, I find that I love the process because it really forces you to listen. Hi. Hi. Um, I work with Radio Rookies and you know we spend a long time working with kids to help them tell their stories. And you know I don't know if this is sort of more and more with the younger generations too, but there, there's such a familiarity with like how the confessional narrative should sound. And so we have like, there's like two sides of the Oprah coin. There's like the there's like the you know tied up in a bow ending, and then there's like the the big emotional or you know sort of over emotion, and we're always sort of negotiating that. And it's hard to sort of I'm wondering if you have any advice for like, you know after a while we just sort of say hey that's an Oprah moment you know <laughs> don't get so Oprah. But there's times you know when you can't say that in the moment, and how do you sort of guide someone, you know back from the brink, on either side of that to you know to to be to be themselves, yeah. Or, or do you find well, are you finding the the sort of uh, the the Oprah moments don't ring true? Well, sometimes they even do ring true, I guess. But they're just it's like they're I don't know. It seems sometimes that the the response is is bigger than the question or, or somehow. And I I don't know exactly what I'm saying. I guess it's sort of a gut level thing. But um, just if you find someone sort of too much or too little, you know, it just doesn't feel quite honest, and yet how can you say to someone, you know, are, are you for real, is that really how you felt when, you know, your dad died or whatever, you know, like, it's mm -hmm. a hard sort of thing to negotiate in the moment, and I don't know if you have any advice about when you sort of sense that someone is, is too far to one side there. I totally agree with you about the confession being really familiar, or like a third genre of that is in the reality show where, where somebody turns to the camera and is talking into the camera, right? Um, and and um, are you doing things that you can get that kind of range of emotion? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But, you know, kind of like the tears over the horse, for instance, that you didn't use. 
was that entirely just because it was on off topic or was it you know, it was, on, it it was, was like, off topic like I kind of think that there are certain and I, I also think that you need a build to that kind of stuff uh, you, you you can't like tears or there's there's certain things that I kind of think are nuclear weapons of personal storytelling you only want to use them very sparingly you know like uh, being abused you know tortured stories about the holocaust thing you know that that sort of thing um so and you want to use less than more so like the the deep emo like that kind of wailing of grief just strictly in terms of the dramaturgy of it you you can't just blow people away with that and you can't start with that i don't think either you need to build to that you need the context um you you may you know the scene i played with jody porter she cries after and uh i really had to figure out how much of that to use so to, to be truthful but not to like totally go over the top um I don't know. The how do you feel question is really overused, of course. It's used on every sideline interview in sports and you never really never really get a good answer. What what did you feel is a better one? Um, <clears throat> I'm kind of groping here, Melissa. Yeah, I guess I am too. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> but it's I, I, that's I a take, question for the ages, I think. But yeah, I take I take your point. Um, Thanks. So I think you've actually spoken a bit to my question, so I'll be quick. Your colleague Steve this morning said that each story has its hairball, and sometimes two. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering if there's ever any risk of um, sort of sameness with the hairballs, or how you approach, maybe if you want to speak more to how do you approach storytelling. Um, if each hairball is naturally unique, or <laughs> if you use storytelling in a way that allows each hairball to sort of... <laughs> well, I do think that each one is unique, actually. Um, you know, there's... People are still writing great love songs. <laughs> I mean, they're, when the people are still writing, uh, uh, you know, there's just so much nuance, and I think where it becomes unique is going from that own person's unique experience. Um, in terms of programming a year, I mean, I'm not going to do 20 cancer stories in a row. So, unfortunately, the 20th one or the fifth one may start to sound, you know, somewhat like the first one. And it's not that it's not a legitimate story, but, um, yeah, sameness, is, sameness of subject matter can be an issue, for sure. Two more questions and then we'll have some food. Thanks. Mine's uh, just kind of a quick nuts and bolts question. I'm wondering, how would you adjust your interview technique to call uh, personal information for, you know, a first-person narrative? Basically, to interview yourself, I suppose. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, audio diaries are really good, using t touchstones like a photograph. Um, uh, but would you use those kind of same techniques, those finish the sentence techniques? Yeah, you? you know what, you, you could do it. I mean, it's really helpful to have a, a, a second set of ears to, to help you guide you. But, but yeah, you, I mean, you can do that to some extent. Once you have all your material, how involved is the person with structuring and putting everything together in the editing process and even blogging? 
different for every person. Some people want to be absolutely intimately involved, want to build careers as a broadcaster, want to, you know, chop up the tape and everything. Other people uh, are less hands-on. Um, but I think you are, uh, we, in our show, we encourage people to be as involved as they can or want to be. Does it ever come down to the point where you're saying, no, I really know that it works better this way and they really want it that way? Yeah. Who wins? <laughs> it sure does. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, because I vet other producers' works, uh, a lot of times I'm kind of the, uh, as George Bush would say, I'm the decider. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, I do really have to, oh, you know, it's a balancing act. I mean, you're, you want to respect the person, but sometimes they, they, you know, it's not uncommon for them to kind of <gasps> pull back and how can I, how can I do this? And, but, you know, if, if you can win them over, in the, our experience on the show is they, they feel good about it in the end, like maybe not, a, they're still a little bit nervous, but after a little while, they, they feel, yeah, you know, that, was, that worked. The world didn't fall in. Neil, uh, you, you call yourself um, the, the decider. Um, <laughs> just, just a few quick nuts and bolts. Um, Okay, you're talking about emotions and obviously then knowing your audience. I'm interested just uh, to get to a couple of the crunch queries. Timeline, where emotion is concerned, I mean, you could go on for forever. You know, is there a particular window that you decide, um, you know, uh, off camera, I should say, behind the scenes with, with the crew, you know, how this is going to go? Or obviously, when you're in the moment and you can't plot or plan or, or have a particular running order. Are you, are you, talking, about, there, are you talking about the tape gathering? The whole process, actually. I mean, just as, if you could give us an example of, of just an, an average overview. I know each story. Well, okay. Is so if if the construct is somebody on a quest, trying to um, put right or, or figure out something unresolved in their life, you've designed a set of actions or possible things that they could do to do that. Whether it's a conversation or doing something or going someplace or, you know, figuring that out, um, y you do need to figure out some way that it could be contained without drawing the conclusion at the end. In terms of the tape gathering, um, uh, you know, tape's cheap. Um, uh, we're radio, you're not dealing with a big crew. Uh, we loan equipment. Um, I mean, we tend, we don't want to process like thousands of hours of tape for a 15 minute documentary. So we, you know, we try and get people to, to focus on things. Um, in terms of how long it takes to do one of these documentaries, it can vary anything from three weeks to, like, we've had a year, two years. The ownership of the, of the um, actual product, I mean, taking control of that. So you speak to me, I'm the character, it's, it's my emotion, I've you know, connected with you, I'm trusting you. At what point do you, do you let me in, or, or do you more or less say, turn on, tune in, and, and at an appropriate date, you'll get to hear your story? Or will you allow me, you know, have that um, first listen um, before I, I turn on and hear my own voice? Okay, uh, which point of view am I, you talk, uh, as a producer? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm interested to know from, from, oh, I see. from your stance, and if I'm the character, just using me as okay. a um, Producer, I mean, you, you, you if, if they've kind of handed a, a lot of the material over to you, then you do want to run it by them, uh, like a first draft. Here's what I'm thinking. You know, and a lot of times it's additive. There may be something that's missing once you get it all put together. 
And just my final thing, um, when you uh, are setting up to encourage the person to be in the moment and they're closing their eyes, etc., have you clipped them on, clip on mic, or...? No, just use a... Just a handheld? Yeah, handheld, but make them closely, like three to six inches, because you want that intimacy. Um, and, and that intimacy gives you the sound of, you know, the sound of their voice. It really makes it three-dimensional. Okay, thanks a million. And finally, I really cared about the lady who was lonely and then she went shopping. What oh. happened to her? Oh. What happened to her? Yeah. She's making a documentary <laughs> about it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Oh, no, this, it, it's still a work in progress. Yeah, I can't. It, 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 I, I don't yeah. know. There's just that. There's that. Well, for me, I, yeah. I just hoped. I hope she's just not lonely. I hope she's <laughs> friends. Okay. Thanks. Thank you all.